Mac Power Users, Episode 209, Workflows with Casey Liss. Hello, everyone. This is David Sparks, along with my pal, Katie Floyd. Hi, Katie Floyd. Hey, David. How are you? Good, good. Um, We've got a friend with us today, Casey Liss from the ATP Accidental Tech Podcast here. Casey, welcome to the show. Hello, thanks for having me. I, I thought we had to have you on the show, Casey, because we had we had John on, I don't know, a year or two ago, and Marco, and and to be honest, I, I really love the role you play in that show. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and, you know, it, it, I mean, it, it would be really hard to podcast with John Syracuse every week, because the guy is so flippin' smart. I just I can't get over <laughs> what he says, yeah. and um, you know, it, I, I kind of feel uh, like you're digging a hole here, David. Uh, well, no, 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 no he's not at all. <laughs> no, I, I, I totally relate to Casey on that show. It's, it's hard to keep up with. I mean, John Syracuse sometimes will talk about patent law, and he's got sometimes a lot better ideas than I do. And my day job, I'm a lawyer. I'm supposed to be thinking about this stuff. So anyway, <laughs> yeah, it's um, funny. Either, you know, either the- way. I, the bad way of looking at it is I'm I'm the dumb one with the two smart ones. But the way I prefer to look at it is, is even if I'm perhaps not quite as intelligent as the other two, just by association, I look a little bit better and smarter. So that, that's how I tend to look at it. Well, I'll tell you the way I, I look at it is you are a guy who spends your days PC programming. You know, you're on a PC programming all day <laughs> and and you found this, you know, love for the Mac. and you know, as they say, there's nobody more religious than a convert. And I bet you've got some great ideas for workflows. And we I mean, Katie, we're talking about potential guests. I said, we, we have to get Casey on. I mean, he's going to have some great ideas. So yeah. uh, and, and I certainly we'll, appreciate your point of view, because I feel like you represent the every man or the every woman in my case. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you. And bring some balance to that. So, but yeah. I, so, I, I forgive me, David, because I have to ask this question and I've set it up a little bit, but but Casey, start us off a little bit by telling us who the hell is Casey. You know, I wish somebody would tell me. Now, uh, so my name is Casey Liss, and as you guys uh, already kind of alluded to, I am a Windows developer and uh, corporate stooge by day, and then by night I moonlight occasionally with doing some iOS development. Although I'm way behind on that, I've been starting to write a little bit more on my blog. But I'm known, if at all, for uh, being one third of the Accidental Tech Podcast with the aforementioned John Syracuse and Marco Armand. Yeah. And just for our listeners out there who don't know, I wasn't trying to be mean. Um, that's one of the <laughs> most uh, one of my favorite theme songs of ATP is one of your listeners, who I think was actually a friend of yours, wrote in with, right. an, with an alternate version of the the MP, the uh, ATP theme song uh, that when it got to your section just said, who the hell is Casey? And then riffed off of that for, you know, 30 seconds or so. And I just thought it was absolutely brilliant. Uh, laughing along as I as I was trying not to crash anything driving. But uh. <laughs> yeah, it's a friend of mine whose given name the poor guy is Larry King. And um and he had written that uh just for uh, on a lark and sent it to I think all three of us. And of course immediately all of us pounced on it and thought it was hysterical. And so we'll have to try to remember to put that in the show notes for anyone who hasn't heard it, but it's really well done. Yeah, we we certainly will. Um, so you have a day job as a PC programmer. You're, you're working on the Mac. You, you do this ATP thing and, and, uh, you, you're an iOS developer. So you, and I, I guess we should point out, uh, you're soon to be a father. That's probably one of the most important roles that you're going to be playing pretty soon. 
Yes, yes. It, it still doesn't feel entirely real. Um, but my wife, Erin, is due in early November. We're recording this in early August. And uh, we are only freaking out slightly, which is good. I consider that a personal victory. But uh, this is our first kid. And, and suffice to say, it's been a long time coming. And, and I wrote about that a while back on my blog. But um, it, it's, it's really awesome. And we're really, really excited. All right, Casey, I got a couple points for you right here. Uh, number mm-hmm. one, uh, take Aaron out to some really nice dinners over the next month or two. Because once <laughs> the baby arrives, that is over for a while. And then the second one, this is the tip I give every new father I meet. Um, you've got to learn what I call you know, the remote feed. So when you've got a baby, and I love babies, and whenever someone in the family has a baby, I always go over, you sit on the couch, and you can watch football or Doctor Who or whatever pleases you, and you say, give me that baby, and you sit on the couch, you hand it. Now, you got to follow along with me, just visualize this. You take your left hand, and you put the remote in your left hand, and then you lay the baby across your left arm, and then you've got your right hand available to feed, burp, do all the stuff you need to do with that baby. And then for the rest of the day, you say, okay, I'll be here on the couch taking care of the baby. You guys, you know, I got <laughs> I got this covered. And you right. watch TV all afternoon. It's perfect. It sounds flawless. Yeah. That, you can write that one down. I'm, I'm going <laughs> to copyright that. <laughs> well, you, you just oh, released your book. So now, now you have something else to write about. Oh, man. Yeah. I, I've got all great kinds of great dad tips. The other one is the pizza crust. When they start teething, you freeze a pizza crust. I mean, you always want to oh. order a pizza, right? They teeth on that oh, frozen absolutely. pizza crust. And they just get a little bit of bread off of it, but it, it numbs their gums. Oh, it's a great trick. That I could, is I a could, life I could, we should do a, We should do a dad workflow show. Uh, let's let's bring Casey back in a year, because he's going to have a bunch of them. <laughs> <laughs> We'll see if I have any hair left at that point. But, oh, it's so fun. You're going to, you're, you're in for it. Just enjoy every moment. You're going to have a great time. Everybody always tells me, uh, when I had my kids are like, oh, you know, the first six months is that really special time. And they'll say, oh, when they're two years old, that's when it's really special. I think every age with my children has been special and it's all been a lot of fun. So just, just strap in and hold on for the ride, brother. You're going to have a good time. <laughs> the, the fun thing though for the geek angle is there's so much great stuff now for like baby monitoring and just general geek parent stuff that just didn't exist when i was get um when in fact we just did a show on repurposing old ios devices and we got an email like within minutes of us finishing the recording of someone saying oh yeah you keep your old iphone as a baby monitor Right, like, right, I never right. thought of that, but what a great idea. <laughs> yeah, well, I'm very curious to, to see what we end up coming up with. And you're actually a step ahead of me because the thing that I'm excited about from a geeky point of view is that I haven't been able to run around a store with a UPC scanner since Aaron and I got married in, or well, I guess shortly after we got engaged. And it's been, I don't know, seven, eight years now. And so we're intending to register for our baby shower and all that stuff this coming weekend. And all I keep thinking about is how much fun I'm going to have running around like Babies Are Us, scanning everything with a little UPC scanner. So that tells you a couple things. One, I'm very, very easily entertained. And two, I'm having trouble seeing what step 10 is because I'm so excited about step one. So should be good. You know, you know what I don't understand is and when we when we had our first baby we didn't bought all this stuff and we we didn't use like most of it <laughs> to be honest with you right, but yeah right. back when i they had a thing when our kids were little and granted now our kids are 
or almost beyond teenagers, um, it's called the diaper genie. And it was basically a bucket of poop that you kept in your house. (laughs) And you would put the diapers in it and it would like hermetically seal them or something. And I thought it was, I I don't know, why would someone want that in their house? I never could figure that out, but it's crazy. uh, There's so much baby stuff out there. A very good friend of mine just had a, a baby and was and I, and I promise folks we'll get on to tech stuff in just a minute. Uh, just just hang hang with us on um, baby power users here for just a, a little bit longer. <laughs> but um, she she was registering for all the stuff and I was trying to pick something off of her her baby list to give her and I just couldn't quite find anything and I looked and and she had um you know the little the little uh, butt wipes the little um I, you know I don't know what they're called the the little yeah. wipey things the yeah. Wipes. Yeah. There, there's a there's a butt wipe warmer now, and she had registered yeah. for that because apparently you can't have cold wipes. So it's funny you mention that because oh, we no. were talking to some friends of ours who are fairly recent parents. Their child is a year, year and a half maybe, and they made a very interesting point, which was if you get the butt wipe warmer, then the baby gets accustomed to having warm butt wipes. That's and true. what happens when you're going down the road and maybe I'm driving and Aaron needs to change the baby or maybe we've pulled over or whatever. Point being, you're not at home and you're not in a position where you can provide power to the butt wipe, butt wipe warmer. Then what? Then the baby screams bloody murder because all of a sudden it has a cold wipe going on its bottom. I, you know, I just think we're, we're at a precipice here with the, the convergence of low energy Bluetooth and the whole concept of automation and connectivity. And Katie and I have actually done several shows on home automation and how all this stuff is evolving and it's happening really fast. And it's only a question of time in my mind before a lot of that technology finds its way into child rearing, especially babies. I mean, I could see some kind of device that attaches to a diaper that tells you when it gets wet. And right. you know, I, there, there's a lot of stuff out there that really wouldn't be that hard. Somebody's probably already working on, and some of that would be pretty nice. You know, <laughs> I was just telling a young father the other day who was telling me, you know, how do you check? You know, if there's a problem in the diaper, well, it's not really a pleasant thing to check for. (laughs) Anyway, I think I should just stop right now. But I mean, I could see this technology really coming into uh, dealing with babies and it could be a useful thing if done, you know, wisely. But anyway, Casey's about to enter all that and that's going to be fun. But I guess my advice is just don't go crazy with all this. So just have fun with that baby. He or she is going to be such a delight. We are. We are very much looking forward to it. All right. uh, you know the other thing you should do. Uh, let's one more technology oh. thing. I think, I think Brett Kelly told us about this because you know he's the Evernote guy. He was on our show a while back, and sometimes when his kid says something silly or fun, he will just record it into Evernote. So he's got these all these little recordings of his children as they are growing up. And I was so jealous of him when I heard that because it, that wasn't something that was easy to do when my kids were little. And right now, you know, I would give my my right one to hear a recording of my 17-year-old when she was three saying something silly to me. I would just <laughs> love that so much. Yeah, I agree. It's funny because and this will hopefully segue us more towards the standard uh, conversation for Mac oh, Power users. But um, <laughs> one of the things I've been trying to do is I, I've really started to embrace uh, the iOS and Mac app day one. And 
one of the things I've been doing is, you know, like a lot of people will take pictures of, of the mom. So I've been taking pictures of Erin every week as she's gotten bigger and bigger. And I don't mean that in a derisive way. I just mean that she's carrying a child. And so naturally she's growing uh, as, as it's growing. Well, anyways, one of the things I did was we actually had a basically standard checkup this morning, but in this particular one, uh, Aaron had to do the glucose or glucosamine, whatever it is, test for gestational diabetes. And so here I am sitting at like the doctor's office trying to trying to quietly ninja cam a picture of her drinking this gestational diabetes drink, which in and of itself is the most unremarkable kind of boring picture in the world. But it's something that we can look back on and look back on and be like, Oh yeah. Remember we had to drink that really fruity drink that made you feel kind of weird and blah, blah, blah. And so I'm trying to take like these little moments and shove them into day one, even if at the, at the time in which it happens, it seems unremarkable just so this way we, we can go back and reflect upon these times that maybe we're passing in the moment, but in retrospect will be very noteworthy. Yeah. And, and you know, when the kids are, are born, bullets are flying so it's even harder to stop yeah. <laughs> and appreciate those moments right and right. so so capturing that way is just going to be golden to you at some point what a great idea i i think that it's a lot of fun now didn't day one recently come out with some type of publishing platform yeah, i mean one did. of my thoughts mm-hmm. about day one is i mean you're going to have all that great data in there but it wouldn't be nice if you could make a hard copy or or put it into some different format where it's much easier to share or save yeah, and I think you can export. I'm looking now and trying to stall, not very gracefully. Yes, you can export via or to PDF. Uh, actually, whoa, and you can even export to Markdown, which I knew you could compose a Markdown, so I guess it makes sense. But you can export to PDF, plain text, or Markdown. Right, well, there, and we, I think we, there's we've there's had... some kind of web sharing mechanism now as well. If you, yeah, that's the yeah. publish feature that that's you that you were just talking about. Mm-hmm. Now, Katie, you've talked in the show in the past and you use day one in kind of a unique way. Uh, you use it kind of like a diary in the day job to keep track of things as they're happening. And then you can go back later and, you know, find out, you know, what, what happened in that meeting or what do I need to follow up on? Are you yeah. still doing that? Um, I have backed off of that. Um, but I, I, I did do that for a long time and I've, I've actually moved to alternate methods for that more so because I think I want to get that stuff out of day one and start using day one more as a traditional journal. Cause I think it would be so much better suited for that as day one started to add these other features. What would be really great is if day one would ha- allow you to have multiple journals. Well, they've got tagging and yeah, there's I, some, I really don't want the work and the personal stuff in the same journal, but we'll see. Yeah, I could see that. I, I'm still using it as a diary. I, I don't put entries in it every day, but at least a couple a week. And it's this rambling nonsense that I don't think I'd want anybody else to ever read. And I think at some <laughs> point I'll, you know, when I'm old and drooling on myself, I'll, I'll maybe read it and just laugh at what a moron I was in my forties. Um, but that's okay. I'm still doing it. And one of my workflows for that is a lot of times I dictate those in my little Sony recorder while I'm driving. So, you know, if I'm thinking about something, I don't want to listen to the radio. I'll just dictate a day one entry. And then on my Mac, I can transcribe that with Dragon Dictate, which Dragon Dictate 4 really does a great job with transcription of recordings if you haven't tried it. And then that um, then I can just drop it into day one. And it's fun to take like a picture or something at the same time. Yeah, I initially got into day one because uh, when we were going overseas with Marco and Tiff, his wife, um, we we went to Germany together in early 2013. 
And I wanted to have a place where I could not only like take pictures and take little notes about what we were doing, but also geotag them. So I could say, well, we were at Hofbrau House in Munich or what have you. But I didn't necessarily want to broadcast that to all of Twitter or Facebook or perhaps Instagram. And I wanted kind of a private version of all of those things. And that's when I started using day one. So for traveling, I absolutely love it. And then over time, I've started to kind of tweak my workflow uh, in order to do, do things like taking pictures of Aaron's baby bump or just take note of different things that relate to the baby. Like, for example, the other night, uh, it was hiccuping. Uh, in the in, as we were sitting there, just kind of relaxing and reading, and and that was the first time that had happened. So I scrawled a little note in day one, real quick. And again, just because little little moments like that will will forget if I don't write it down. I went to Hofbrau House. You, you just totally diverted me. Uh, I went to Hofbrau House when I was a <laughs> Sorry, teenager. In it's Munich, not hard right? to do. <laughs> in Munich, that's the first yes, place yes. in my life I remember entering, but I don't remember leaving. That's the first place <laughs> I've ever had that experience. You're still there, I mean, David. I, I, yeah, I don't seriously. know. I woke up the next day in a room, but I don't have any recollection of how I got there. <laughs> That's magnificent. I'm so get we back we there got someday. Oh, it's so great. We got to Munich. This is our first day in Munich, and uh, and the four of us go into and we stumble in the sense that we were very overtired. We stumble into Hofbrau. And we sit down, we happen to sit down next to this Russian gentleman. I don't think we've ever told this story publicly, but we sit down next to this Russian gentleman who is completely happy. Let's go with that. He was very happy. And he was explaining to us after we were all taking out our iPhones at one point or another to Instagram or to use day one or whatever. He said he brings out this like old flip phone or something like that and says to us in reasonable English, oh, you people in your iPhones, you think you're so cool. Watch this. So he takes his phone and dumps it in his liter of beer, just deliberately drops it in the liter of beer, okay. lets it sit for like 30 okay. seconds, pulls it out, and then immediately starts calling his girlfriend back in Russia sh to, to indicate to us how durable his phone is. It was yeah. the most wild thing I'd ever witnessed. And we had been in Munich for like two hours at this point. Yeah. Uh, oh, Munich Hofbrau. is so fun. I yeah. loved Munich. I really did. It, but, you know, getting back to day one, that's one of those apps that, to my knowledge, really doesn't have a competitor if you're on a Mac and iOS because it's, it just crushes it so well. I mean, they keep making adding features. They keep making it better. And it syncs your data so easily. It's really a pleasure to use. It, it It's the diary app of choice. I Have you ever heard of anybody that's using anything other than day one for that stuff? Evernote, maybe. But I, I wouldn't find it, it as yeah. good, personally. And yeah, I should note that I've met the uh, two of the guys that that work on day one. I don't recall how big the team is, but um, I remember one of him. One of them was Paul Maine, and for the life of me, I can't remember the other other gentleman's name. But I met them at WWDC just by happenstance, and I look over and they're wearing day one T shirts, and I'm like, wait, 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 you guys do day one? Yeah, we wrote day one, and oh, I couldn't stop gushing to them, and they were the nicest guys in the world. Yeah, I think I corresponded with them. I wrote an article on Max Barkey once or something. They wrote me a really nice note. It's just super nice people, but also just really making a, a fantastic application. It's come up it, that has come up on our show several times over the years, day one. And I, I, if somebody out there has something else that they prefer, let us know. We'll put it in the feedback show. But man, if you haven't tried day one and you're interested at all in trying to do a diary, that's a that's a really good place to start. 
Well, David, so, why, don't, uh, uh, why don't we try to get back on uh, <laughs> back on track here? <laughs> so you're maybe, assuming we ever were on we track. We were never on track. Floyd. We were never following the outline. Uh, but why don't we take a quick break here, and uh, you can you can tell us about our first sponsor, and, and then we'll come oh, back and talk I, a little I love bit about our Casey's day sponsor. job. <laughs> I love our first sponsor and, uh, and that's lynda.com. You know, it's a, if you have ever wanted to learn how to do something with your computer and you, you know, the days of reading books to do this stuff are over. I mean, that's why I'm writing these field guides because you need someone to show you how. And lynda.com is, is the premier source for this. Uh, lynda.com can give you instruction on software, including things like Microsoft Office or Adobe Creative Suite or Final Cut Pro or Logic Pro. I mean, whatever you know, application you're having trouble figuring out, you can go to Lynda and take a course on it. But there's so much more than that. They also have business and kind of life advice. They have photography classes. Um, you go in there and you sit there and you set it up and you can just pick up a queue of different videos that you're interested in. At any one time, I've got 15 or 20 of them lined up. So whenever I'm on the treadmill or just sitting eating dinner and I want to have a little entertainment, I will watch something from lynda.com. They've got some great new titles that I think are, are really appropriate for our audience. One of them is up and running with IFTT, you know, if this, then that. We talk about this on the show quite often, uh, and you can organize your life across these digital platforms and connect devices with IFTT. Linda shows you how to do it. Um, they've also got stuff on Google Docs and Sheets. They've got things on how to give a good presentation. They've got things on how to manage your Monday morning. It's just they, they really are, are just doing some great stuff. Um, if you haven't tried it yet, you need to go in and with the coupon code I'm going to give you in a few minutes, you get seven days for free. And that's not seven days of a limited amount. You get the whole enchilada. Uh, all courses are produced at the highest quality. And it's not like the homemade stuff you see on YouTube. You can watch from your computer or your tablet or your mobile device. They just upgraded the app, by the way, for iOS. And that's really great. Um, the courses are broken into bite-sized pieces. So if you have 15 minutes or 15 hours, you can watch them at your own pace. And if you already know some of it, but let's say you want to get really good at one feature that you're not familiar with, you can jump right to that. And you don't have to watch all the other stuff. Uh, you can download project files with a premium plan and practice along with the instructor. Uh, they're structured so you can learn from start to finish. So if you don't know anything about an application, you can still get up to speed with Linda. And learning tools include searchable transcripts and playlists. So if you type in the search bar in Linda, you'll be amazed at what great detail you get because they're going to search all the transcripts of all those videos. Uh, you can get a certificate of course completion if if you need the gold star and you can publish it to your LinkedIn profile. Man, that might help for work. You never know. Uh, premium, premium members with an annual plan can download courses to their iPhones or iPads and watch them offline. So if you're one of those uh, road warriors and you're spending a lot of time on airplane, you may want to do that. I mean, why not learn something great while you're flying across the country? So uh, we've talked to lynda.com. They've agreed to give a special offer just to Mac Power user listeners that gets you the entire library for seven days. Visit lynda.com slash Mac power users um, to try lynda.com free for seven days. That's L Y N D a.com slash Mac power users. I think this is a great fit for our audience. If you haven't tried it, just go try it for seven days and you know take advantage of the free offer and learn something cool. Thanks Linda for supporting the show. So Casey, in your day job, you are a windows based programmer and 
a little bit of uh, iOS programming, I guess you you do by night. Uh, how did you get to be a Mac guy after all that? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, when I was, let's see, I was working, I was still working in the Windows world, but I was running a ThinkPad because my dad works for IBM and I've grown up on ThinkPads. And so I was running a ThinkPad, but I was running it on Ubuntu Linux. At this time, it was like Hardy Heron or Gutsy Gibbon or something like that. Um, and I did an upgrade. Actually, I think it might have been from Hardy Heron to Gutsy Gibbon, which this is like circa 2008, 2007, something like that. And the upgrade completely failed and, and it fell on its face. And here it was my primary, basically my only computer uh, outside of my work computer was completely shot. And I was just tired of fiddling all the time. I was getting over just having to keep everything running by fiddling with things all the time. And so a couple of my friends, Marco being one of them, and a couple of my local friends, uh, all developers kept saying to me, dude, you got to try Mac, got to try Mac, got to try Mac, got to try Mac. And so I started sort of listening at this point. And also at this time, I was really big into Tumblr. And through a series of posts that I can get you a link for, uh, Marco and I would, via like reblogs and so on, go back and forth about me telling him, oh, Macs are overpriced. I can get all the eye candy I want through Ubuntu special features. I don't see the point, yada, yada, yada. Well, then this upgrade fell in its face, and I thought, all right, fine. I'm going to go ahead and get the cheapest MacBook I can, and we'll see what happens. And so I bought a polycarbonate MacBook in 2008, I believe it was. And oh, no, I'm sorry, it was 2007. Uh, and so I bought a polycarbonate MacBook and hated it for two weeks because there's no control panel. None of the stuff was where I expected it to be. And then all of a sudden, everything just clicked, and I haven't gone back since. And do you get yeah. to use a Mac? at all in your day job? My understanding is, is everything's pretty locked down, right? Uh, yes and no. So my work-issued computer is a late 2011 um, high-res anti-glare MacBook Pro. So oh, okay. that is that is what work gave me. Um, it's getting a little bit long in the tooth now, and I say that mostly because it doesn't have Bluetooth low energy, and I'm really jealous of all the Yosemite and iOS 8 handoff stuff that I'm not going to be able to use. But we do have an SSD in it, and it has 16 gigs of RAM. So by most measures, it's actually pretty darn quick. And basically for development stuff, so when I'm in Visual Studio, uh, I, I will do that in VMware Fusion. And so I have a VM open pretty much 45 hours a week, anytime I'm doing normal day-to-day -day work. But Outlook, can we, can we I use... interrupt there just for one second, oh, yeah, Casey? Absolutely. Uh, mm -hmm. uh, you know, there's kind of an ongoing... Uh, war between uh, VMware Fusion and Parallels, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. and these guys are always trying to up each other. And I think it's great because the oh, software absolutely. just keeps getting better and better. Um, but uh, are you uh, devoted to VMware Fusion or is it just you pick one or, you know, how did you come to that decision? Um, I think I might have asked Marco at the time. I don't remember what it was, but I asked somebody when I first got my polycarbonate MacBook. And that person, whoever it was, said, "Ah, eh, well, I use VMware, but just like you were saying, David, you know, you could use either one, and I've just stuck with it ever since. I've never tried Parallels. For all I know, it may even work better than VMware Fusion, but I've never, so far, had any issues with VMware Fusion, and it's always been rock solid for me, and so that's what I've stuck with. The last time I looked at it seriously, um, the the takeaway I took was um, VMware is better for kind of nerds because 
it it does a better job of running virtual machines. So if you want to run, you know, an a, a, you know a Mac or OS ten server build, and you want to run, you know, Ubuntu and all these other things, they make it so easy to run different virtual machines that I thought it was good for that. Whereas Parallels seemed to me kind of um, more customizable for someone that just really wants to dig in and run Windows. Um, but, you know, it's been a year or two since I looked at it really closely. For all I know, they both have made up for those deficiencies in the meantime. Mm-hmm. At the time, I think Parallels was accepted to be the better one for gaming, but I have almost no interest in that. And so that was the other part of the reason I went with VMware. Now, just like you were saying, I couldn't tell you if one was clear, clearly better than the other for gaming. Yeah, I yeah. happen to run uh, Parallels on my Mac at the office and and I think I just picked it because that was the one that was updated most frequent or the the most recently at the time that I decided to choose it. And you know, of course, they're they're always leapfrogging each other with with every version. So that's why I happened to pick Parallels at that particular point. And I've been I've been very happy with it. I have one or two proprietary um, pieces of software that I use in my practice, maybe once a week or at least several times a month that I that I run in there. And, and I've been pretty happy with it. I fire it up when I need it. I've got an SSD even in that you know, 2009 core two duo Mac mini that I have. Um, and you know, it's, you know, it's windows. It takes a little while to, to open up if it hasn't been open in a while, but once it's up, it's running fine. Yeah. I, and, I mean, generally you speaking, I've noticed, issues, right. <laughs> well, that's the thing. If you don't open it often, you got to pay for that. But, uh, but I have no real issues with, with mine. Um, I think I have XP that I'm using. I don't even pay close enough attention to that sort of stuff anymore, but, uh, it, usually i'm in xp and granted it's not very well supported anymore but um for a lot of the things i'm doing i don't need anything fancier and then occasionally what we'll do is if i have a project that requires a lot of server-side software i'll stand up a vm just for that project and that'll be windows server 2008 or sometimes an even more recent one um but yeah I i basically live in vmware for development work and then for anything other than that email im any of those sorts of things, you know, looking at Stack Overflow, that's all done on the Mac side. Uh, one, one trick I learned when I was because I used to use Parallels quite a bit for a couple of proprietary applications at work as well, but I've been able to kind of escape those the last year or two. Well, the last time I did a rebuild on my on my MacBook, I just didn't install Parallels, and I've I haven't really felt the need for it. But one of the things I used to do is I had kind of the virtual machine set up just how I wanted it with the specific work apps and those things on it. It was virus free and kind of a fresh clean install. And it was about a seven gigabyte file of memory serves. And I would just copy that off and save that somewhere as kind of a backup. And if things started getting wonky on the PC install, I could always go back and just copy that into the drive and load it up and, and uh, it just started fresh and it was like a clean install with, with five minutes work, but then you had to do all the updates right. again. <laughs> right. Yeah. That is smart though. And it certainly does happen with windows machines. Yeah. Well, and we, I think we, sometimes we're not fair to it. I mean, they, if, if Apple had the kind of, you know, market share that windows does, it, it would have the same problems in a lot of ways. Yeah, and the diversity of hardware as well, because Windows has to run on darn near anything, whereas yeah. you know OS X has to run on, by comparison, like two different computers. So it's a lot easier well, for I, Apple. I was thinking about it today because I just published an article at Max Barkey. This is actually we're recording this a little early, um, but about this whole thing about ARM-based Macs. 
And one of the downsides of that would be, you know, parallels and, you know, the idea of, of creating a virtual PC gets a lot harder when it's not running on the same, you know, Intel chip as the PC is. And I got wondering, I wonder how important that is at this point. I'm not sure it's it's nearly as important as this was three or four years ago. Mm, yes and no. I think it depends on your line of work. Um, for me, obviously, I do a lot of Windows development. So if I if I would were to ever choose between an Intel and an ARM Mac, even if the ARM Mac, for the sake of discussion, had 24 hours of battery life and was just as fast for anything that was natively compiled for OS X, I would still choose the shorter lasting, slower Intel Mac because I would want VMware or Parallels to run so much faster. You, You absolutely hit the nail on the head. And there's a lot of people in my office who Roll with who run with Macs that aren't developers, and for normal day to day stuff, they're fine on just using OS 10 software. But I would imagine if they they use VMware often enough that they might make the same choice as well. Yeah, and I suspect I know, that the choice say. wouldn't. I suspect the choice though wouldn't be a slower Intel; it would be a much faster Intel with a shorter battery life. I mean, I don't I, think that, that's a fair point. Yeah. I guess um, I'm just surprised that uh, for the type of work that you did, that your office was willing to to issue you a a, a Mac um, as your as your computer. But that's that's great. But you're still able to do. I mean, are you using Apple Mail and um, Safari and you know standard Mac apps, or are you? I'm using. Use- yeah, I have to use Outlook, um, which I don't mind. I don't like it, but I don't hate it. Uh, but I but I use Outlook. I use the rest of the Office suite. I uh, use Safari to browse, um, but a lot of other things I find are so much quicker for me on the Mac. Uh, as an example, Sketch, which I use constantly to to annotate pictures. So if I'm demonstrating why a bug is happening, or perhaps what should I do here, you know, being able to do that quickly and easily by you know using the three finger salute for taking a screenshot, and then it drops on my desktop, and then I can just open with Sketch and do whatever annotations I need, then drag that into Outlook. That's very, very, very fast for me. And I'm sure I could find similar things on the PC, but it works so well on the OS X side. The one thing I will tell you, though, that I absolutely hate and doesn't work at all is Microsoft Link, which is their uh, IM uh, instant messenger and, and screen sharing thing. Their Mac client is awful, just woefully bad. And so I've been petitioning the the office to switch to HipChat. And I've heard Slack is also very good, but I've not tried it. And I'm not quite winning the fight to get on HipChat yet, but I'm trying to fight the good fight nevertheless. Slack is like the darling now. There are so many people I know that are running their businesses, you know, like Hip guys running their business off Slack. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've heard nothing it's, but good uh, things, but I've I've not tried it. Well, what other tools are um, are you using in your in your day job? Both either on the Mac, uh, well, probably on the Mac would be of more, most interest to to our listeners. You know, in terms of Mac related things, there's not that much. I mentioned Sketch. Um, I do occasionally have to write a regular expression, which, in case you or your listeners are not aware, basically it's this completely unintelligible uh, code in in that allows you to match or sometimes fiddle with uh, blocks of text. And so there's a really great app on the uh, Mac App Store called 
patterns, which lets you type in or generate a regular expression and then test it against uh, a, a piece of text that you've dropped in. And that's been absolutely invaluable because I'm terrible at writing regular expressions uh, because I don't write in Perl like John Syracuse. And so that's been really helpful. Um, other than that, I really love um, what used to be known as expose and on OS 10, what is it like mission control now? So uh, I use yeah. spaces a lot. I use, um, I think expose is, is the actual thing where it shows you all your windows that are open. I have, I have hot corners set up for both of those. Or I've hot corners for expose, and then I, you know, use swipes for spaces. So you've got—is it a fifteen-inch? It's a fifteen-inch, right? That's right. Okay. Do you use the full screen mode with your apps? Uh, some I not generally. Uh, the one thing I do use in full screen pretty often is Atom, which is a text editor. Um, I believe by GitHub, if I'm not mistaken, and um. That I keep full screen, and that's what I do my editing for my blog in. But just about everything else, including VMware Fusion, I keep windowed. It's very rare that I actually ever make something full screen. I I really like the full screen feature, and it seems like it's come a long way. I, I like that I can just take four fingers and swipe up on the trackpad, and they're all up there labeled. Like even individual Word docs are individually labeled. Today I was doing a thing for work where I had five different documents I was working at the same time. And I think there's no more efficient way to do that than to make each one of them full screen. Uh, when you've got overlapping windows, you, ever, you never know when you're going to get the right one and what's covering what. You just hit the four-finger swipe. You've got them all there. You go tap on it, and you can jump right to that one. Um, I think that people should be trying that full screen stuff more often. But, you know, yeah, I'm not telling it, you, it, you it's due, but I, I, I just think that's something that that's really useful. I thought I might have a compadre there when I heard you were <laughs> using some of the spaces <laughs> features. Well, Al and the funny thing is, the I. Go ahead. Uh, sorry, I was going to say that one of the things that's funny is I used to be like really, really particular that I, I always have dual monitors. Um, and so the the LCD on the MacBook Pro the first space is, I don't know, email. The second space is IM. And the external display, the first space is Safari. And the second space is VMware. And over time, I've found that basically, to your point, when I have too many overlapping windows, something gets thrown on a new space, and I just call it a day. Uh, and so I've gotten a little looser, looser and, and more casual about that. But just as recently as a year ago, I used to be very particular about it. I think for a lot of... of go ahead, Katie. I was going to change the topic a little bit, so go ahead and finish this, and then well, I'll one, one last point on this. No, I'm I'm a stamp program, think, but go ahead. I think for a lot of people, probably not people that listen to our show, but a lot of the people out there that are driving Macs, it's all very foreign to them. They're not sure when something gets in full screen. I mean, I've seen this happen with friends and family where they're like, all of a sudden an app is full screen and they're like, what happened and what's wrong with my Mac and where did everything go? And the way that they implemented that user interface element of the little arrow in the upper right corner is really foreign for people using Macs because they're always understanding that they resize windows in the upper left corner. Now, in Yosemite, they have changed the behavior of the green button in the upper left corner, which was always kind of, I never, even, you know, a super nerd doesn't always understand it because it doesn't always do the same behavior. Well, now it's going to make an app go full screen. If you tap on the green button, it goes full screen, and that's going to be fairly consistent. I think people uh, will discover the full screen mode more with Yosemite. 
Yeah, that's a welcome improvement because to your point, the 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 green button never I never use it because it always does something completely different. And I always feel stupid afterwards because I expect it to do A and it does Z. At one point I figured it out and wrote an article on it and I was all proud of myself. And then like a like a month later, I had forgotten and I still didn't know what the green button did. So <laughs> I, I just don't <laughs> think there's any solution. <laughs> So, uh, I think they figured I, it out. Let's just turn it into a full screen and for and call it a day. You know, yeah. So, Casey, you are you are a, a PC programmer who works primarily on a Mac, and I, I don't know if, what the demographics are for for ATP, but we've gotten quite a bit of feedback from people who listen to Mac Power users, and I know that we've got some younger folks in our audience and and folks who are high school and and college age now, and they they may be sitting out there saying. You know, that is really cool. That is an awesome job. That is something that I can see myself doing at, at some point. Because to, to say your day job is a PC programmer, I, I think the lines are getting blurred between that. You're, you're just at, at some point in the future, you're just going to be a programmer. And, and so much of this is um, is, is not going to be so PC or Mac based. But how did you you get along this path? And maybe what advice would you have for for someone, you know, maybe in, in your position 20 years ago? or 15 years ago, you know, trying to get started in this field, where do they go and, and what do they do? Yeah, you know, my story is actually not terribly remarkable. Um, I studied computer engineering at Virginia Tech when I was in college, and my first job out of school was actually writing slot machines for the Oklahoma Indian casino market, which was kind of weird, but very awesome. And that was actually that that's pretty regulated. Yes, it is. And believe it or not, that was programming in DOS in C++. And this was in 2004. So this was long after DOS should have basically died a slow and painful death. But um, that's where it started. And basically, over the years, I moved into Windows programming for the defense industry uh, and then went moved into web programming and doing consulting. And it was during my, that time, which is actually what I'm still doing, but during the beginning of that time where I bought myself the uh, polycarbonate MacBook, and basically I just brought that to work every day as well as my Windows computer, because like I was saying, there's so many things that I could get done quicker on the Mac. Then eventually I figured, well, the heck with it. I don't even need this stupid Windows computer. So I stopped fiddling with the Windows computer. And then when I went to my next job, I, I said, you know, here's the thing. This is going to sound nuts, but I actually feel like I work better on a Mac. And they said, no, 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 that's fine. We have a couple of guys here that do that. So we will set you up. And that's exactly what they did. Now you need to I don't say, know, hopefully that answers thing. your question. Now you just need to say, here's the thing. This Mac you gave me is getting a little old. <laughs> Time for yeah, that's one. the problem is we are on a three-year cycle for the Macs because uh, I believe the justification was you get a year of regular warranty and they always buy the Apple Care for them. So they're not going to upgrade me until I've had the computer for three years, and I am just barely under a year away, and it's starting to kill me. <laughs> uh, you'll get a, you get yourself a Broadwell Retina Mac. You're going to love it next year. The, I know. Um, and to be honest, this thing really is nice. I mean, like I said, 16 gigs of RAM and a, I think it's a half terabyte SSD. So I really am in no position to complain. But, oh, man, when that handoff stuff comes in iOS 8 and Yosemite, I'm going to be so miserable. What what do you think about um, uh, people getting into programming now? Like, you know, what what's what's a good place for for kids and and retirees and everybody in between that's interested in programming to get started? 
You know, I actually wrote a very short blog post about this a month or two ago, and I'll, I'll pass it to you guys to put in the show notes. Um, the short version of it is, no matter what your age, no matter what your background, the best way to get into being a programmer or developer is to solve a problem. And that's really what it boils down to. Because if you sit down and say to yourself, well, I'm going to learn Objective-C, or I'm going to learn Swift, or I want to learn you know, Python or, or Ruby or, or Node or what have you, it's never going to work. You're never going to get anywhere because it's just arbitrary and academic. However, if you sit down and say, like I did recently, I really want to figure out a way to, to write my own blogging engine, then all of a sudden you have a goal and you have something to work toward. And so in my case, I wrote this engine that I, I call Camel, and it's written in Node.js, which is uh, JavaScript. And I had done some JavaScript in the past, but I'd never, I'd never done anything in Node. And I had tried to learn Node in a couple of occasions, but it never really stuck because I wasn't really doing anything. I was just fumbling about. And so when I finally had a specific goal, suddenly everything became working toward that goal. And that's when it finally stuck. Similarly, the iOS app I have in the App Store, which I still haven't uh, <clears throat> quite updated for iOS 7 yet, um, that was done mostly so I could prove to myself that I could get something in the app store. And I knew I wanted to write an app that would let you, that would allow you to send text messages quickly. And that's, that's when it stuck. And so that's a very, very long way of saying, figure out a problem to solve and then solve it using the most appropriate tool you stumble on. And that's how you do it. I, you know, I think Swift is a great entry point. Um, over the weekend I had, like a four hour block with nothing to do. And I felt cantankerous. I just shipped a book. So I'm feeling good about myself. And, uh, <laughs> I, I downloaded a, a tutorial and I made a tip calculator for, and I put it on my iPhone and I don't have any experience with, I played with Xcode, but it, it wasn't really that hard. I, I think this is really a great opportunity for people if they want to get in there and kind of have some fun with it. But I, that is a very common question we have from people. So, you know, just where do you get started? It's always interesting to hear from a programmer, you know, their take. Yeah. And Swift is actually a really great example because one of the new features in Xcode, I believe it's six, the new version of Xcode is this thing called playgrounds. And what that basically means, it's hard to describe. What it means is you get a window where you can just type arbitrary lines of code in Swift and it will execute them automatically. And so you can use that to just kind of like an old uh, printed calculator. You know, the calculators that they, that they would spit out, you know, pieces of paper. You could use it kind of like that where you're doing something that's not very remarkable. Or you could run, you could write an entire program in that, but just play with it in this playground window. And the nice thing is you're not going to hurt anything. It's all uh, sandboxed and contained in this window. And that's a really easy, really nice way to to kind of wade slowly into the waters that are swift. And what's doubly great, although I haven't seen this a lot, is that you can actually download already completed playgrounds off the internet. And so you could step through them and see, oh, that's how they did such and such. And if you look at the keynote, the WWDC keynote from this year, I believe it was Chris Latner got up and actually showed an entire like scene out of a game. And there was a blimp that would go back and forth. And all of this was just in a playground. In a, in a Xcode Swift playground. And so it's a, it's a great way 
to dip your toes in the water without worrying about a shark biting them off. Yeah, and this is real early days for this as we're recording this. I'm sure Linda, as an example, is going to have great materials, and there's going to be some great online resources for this stuff. If you've been waiting and you have – make no mistake, this stuff is a discipline. It's going to take an investment of time, but this is really, I think, a great time to kind of dive into this stuff if you're interested in it. But, you know, there's kind of another question related to programming, and this is something I get in trouble with occasionally on the show, is I, I just have so much faith in iOS and Mac programmers because I, I feel like one of the greatest advantages of the Apple platform is not the stuff that Apple makes and the aluminum aluminum is that how <laughs> say? Uh, it, but it's it's the programs and the apps that these independent developers are making you know it is the text expanders and it is you know the fantastic cows and the busy cows and all you know all the great applications you know, it's the stuff that Marco's making. There's just so many applications on the Mac and the iOS that, to me, just feel so much superior to anything I ever used on any other platform. And I, I don't know what it is about that. And I guess I don't know if anybody's ever quantified it, but part of me feels like I'm sure Apple does a good job of making it easy for these people. But I also think there's a very discriminating group of application developers making some really great software for our platform. Yeah, you're absolutely right. It's it's a little of column A and a little of column B. Uh, when I was learning uh, Apple and Objective-C development, I was getting very grumpy, and I've told this story once or twice, but I was getting, getting very grumpy because in order to figure out what day of the week it was or something along those lines in, in text, like Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, I needed to use several different tools, several different classes uh, in code. And I thought it was very convoluted and weird. And I was complaining to a friend of mine, and he said to me, you know, is it really that they're making things difficult or that they've encapsulated everything in the appropriate way? And hopefully that that was not too nerdy and that makes sense. But the Apple frameworks are unbelievably robust and unbelievably good and very well thought out and everything is encapsulated very well, which is a, a long way of saying that for developers, it makes a lot of things very easy. Additionally, typically most developers who develop on Apple platforms are learning a different language than they're used to in order to do that development. And because of that, that means they're really dedicated to the platform and really take it seriously. And finally, because everything around you looks so good, like you were saying, the Fantasticals and the Day Ones and everything else looks so pretty, you know that the only way for you to make any sort of a splash is to also look pretty. Whereas by comparison, Windows, especially up until recently, was the Wild West and anything could be next to anything else and it all, nothing fit in with anything and it was just terrible. But I do think uh, Microsoft has acknowledged that and oh, very much know, so. their, more, their more recent software and you know the more recent versions of Windows, they develop tools in there that hopefully make it easier for developers not to have the user interface from hell. I mean, remember when Gruber used to post like the user interface of the month or something <laughs> he called it? Yeah, yeah. But it would be like this, this horrendous monstrosity of buttons and levers. It was terrible. And I think, you know, in some ways, Windows leads with some of the, the more interesting interface elements they're building now. So I don't know. But uh, I, I do really think that one of the greatest assets on the Mac and iOS are the developers. I hope Apple appreciates that, too. 
Well, guys, I want to take a quick break and talk about our second sponsor for this episode, and that is the folks over at Agile Bits who make um, 1Password. And, you know, at the time that we sit down and record this episode, the breaking news on CNN right now is that Russian hackers have stolen 1.2 billion passwords. And, you know, this is just one after another in a string of these compromises that we keep hearing about. You know, this has just become the new normal. And if you haven't already gotten the message and if your friends and family haven't already gotten the message, reusing the same password over and over and over again on different websites and is just so dangerous now uh, that that. One of these sites, if not many of these sites, are going to be compromised, and and your passwords are out there. Um, and in this particular case, it looks like not only have username and passwords, but also email addresses have been compromised. And so that's just why it is so incredibly important to make sure that you have strong, unique passwords, that you can use different passwords across all of your different sites. You should not be repeating the same password anywhere, because when that site gets compromised you know that only that particular site is compromised. And when you change your password, the threat is over. You may get some spam or something like that, but at least they don't have access to your other sites. And that's where 1Password comes in, because not only will it allow you to store all of your passwords and and not have to remember them, but it will automatically create for you strong, unique passwords that you can use across all of your various websites. Um, It will warn you when you have used duplicate passwords across multiple sites. It will let you know when those passwords are maybe outdated and may need to be changed through their security audit feature. And in a brand new feature called WatchGuard, 1Password will actually tell you when you need to change your passwords because a site has potentially been compromised. And I know that's something that I'm going to spend some time going through this weekend um, and taking a look at all of the various sites in 1Password that uh, have a little WatchGuard compromised label next to them and and go and start changing some passwords. Uh, You just... You have to use a password solution for this um, because you can't keep it all in your head. There are just too many sites out there now where you're going to need passwords. And if you try to keep it in your head, there's no way that you can do the things that you need to do. Uh, It syncs over iCloud or over Dropbox. So you can have your passwords with you anywhere, whether it be on your Mac or your iPhone, your iPad, or even on Android devices. Um, And... If that wasn't cool enough, 1Password has continued to develop and continuing to innovate in this area. David, I don't know if you saw their recent blog post, but a little bit of good news um, is that 1Password is actively developing uh, 1Password extensions uh, in iOS 8, and they've actually demoed some proof of concepts uh, on their blog and have created extensions for developers to plug into so that, you know, one of the big gripes about 1Password and not their fault was that you couldn't use 1Password to log into your apps. It could only log into websites. Well, under iOS and the new extensions platform, that's not necessarily the case anymore. And developers can build 1Password support into their apps. And so uh, go check out the 1Password blog for more information. There's a repository on GitHub where developers can grab the code to integrate this into their apps. And developers, you need to do this now. So uh, you can find more information about 1Password if you're a developer about adding that extension into your app over at onepassword.com um, and let them know that we sent you. You know, we've got um, several developer friends and I've been getting in on a few betas and, and some seeing some screenshots from some amazing stuff. And when iOS 8 and Yosemite go live, 
it is going to be just a massive party in the Mac geek community because it, it, to me, it's going to be right a step below uh, iOS two when they first released an app store at all. Remember? And everybody's like going crazy because all of a sudden they get apps and everybody's downloading all the apps and having so much fun. This is going to be like that because there's so much power you're going to bring to the platform with extensions and some of the other cool stuff they baked into iOS 8. I, I cannot wait for this stuff to go live. Oh, me neither. And to that end, uh, 1Password has shown a couple videos of their extension. And oh, my goodness, it makes everything just so much easier. And I am so excited to have it. It integrates with Touch ID on the 5S. And it integrates with Safari. Oh, my goodness. I am so unbelievably happy for that. Yeah, you can have like this crazy password, one password password, and use your thumb to get into it. So it's not going to be that difficult to enter it on iOS. I mean, uh, so many of the things these guys have wanted to do for years is finally available to them. They must just be loving it right now, setting all this stuff up. Oh yeah, and, and it's not it's not just agile. I mean, there's there's a lot of companies out there, uh, some of which we've talked about on the show in the past, that are gonna their products are gonna get way better just because of this this new uh, this new order, I guess you'd call it. But it's all exciting. I I can't wait to see how all that goes down. Um, you know, Casey, listening to you on the Accidental Tech Podcast, sometimes you guys get into the subject of media management, and um, what that's kind of one of the little things I had written down here is. I don't think you've ever really explained how you deal with media management. How exactly do you organize all of your, your records? I mean, is it alphabetical? <laughs> is it based on a Dewey Decimal system of some kind? Right, right. Well, that's the secret is, uh, you know, so in case you don't know, uh, my co-host and I got into a very heated multi-episode debate about vinyl. And I had said that I re very much prefer the sound of vinyl, and I think it sounds better than digital. And oh my goodness, the entire internet came after me to explain to me how much of a moron I was and how wrong I was. And science, science is what is says that you're completely incorrect. And even though there's really nothing between one and zero, there's tons of space between one and zero. You don't understand sampling rates and blah, blah, blah. And oh my goodness, I wanted to crawl in a hole and just go away. But the, the secret Casey, of all of this. Let me ask real quick. Mm -hmm. wait, wait, let me ask real quick. Are you of an age that you ever bought records when you were a kid and listened to records? Listen to yes, bought no. Uh, my dad see, has and had a turntable, and and that's where I that's what I grew up on. See, I see. I grew up buying records, and the idea of using a record player right now just makes me want to gouge my eyes out with a rusty spoon. I, <laughs> I couldn't imagine going back to, I was so happy when CD showed up and I was even more happy when I could make it all digital and not have to even go look for a disc. Now, Katie, yeah, I'm not sure. Did I ever tell the story about when my daughter got a record player? Mm, have I told that on the show? I, I don't remember. I don't remember. Okay. So, so my 12 year old for Christmas wants a record player and I, I I argued with her violently. Why do you want a record player? I can't believe it. And she kept insisting. So we got her a record player Christmas morning. She's very excited. And by the way, records, when I was a kid, were like $6 and CDs were like 12. Now records are like three times the cost of a CD. I'm not sure how that <laughs> yeah. works, but that's the way it is. And so she, she plays her first record. And yeah, I show her how to set the needle and she plays the first song. And she looks at me and she says, okay, so how do I make it repeat? <laughs> well, that moment was worth it. You, you you pick up the arm and you right. estimate where you think that song started, and you put it back down gently again. 
Yeah. I had the Miles Davis kind of blue album. And it was like, that was like holy scripture to me when I was a kid. I loved it. And I, I'll never forget. Uh, I had a record player on top of my, we had like an old, like one of those old secretary desks with like a shelf. So, and I didn't have any room. So I had the record player up on the shelf. And then I also had a desk lamp that was like bolted on and I was working and I was getting too hot from the lamp. So I just pushed it aside and didn't think about it. And I looked up like five minutes later and it, it literally melted the Miles Davis record right oh, on the because no. I had it too close. I mean, I, I don't know why anybody would want to record. I'm going to join the legions of the internet, Casey, on that one. Well, yeah. And, and what we concluded was whether or, not, whether or not I'm out of my mind in saying that I prefer the sound, it, it seems like I, I have a lot of nostalgic uh, feelings and memories about always watching dad put records on and occasionally doing it myself. And so the whole tea ceremony of it is, is in many ways what I enjoy so much. And I think myself and the internet to some degree reached a, a bit of an understanding that at the very least I enjoy the nostalgia and I enjoy the tea ceremony. But the funny thing about it is, and I don't know if I ever said this on the show on ATP, but I actually don't own any records. Um, a couple have been gifted to me by friends, which I dropped off at dad's house after listening to because I don't even have a record player. So I was standing up for this thing that I don't ever really use. If I'm listening to music these days, I'm probably on Spotify. So that's the funniest part of it all. But to come back to the actual question, which was media management, um, I'm, I think I'm in need of an intervention. And what I mean by that is my photo management technique is awful, which I, I can explain briefly. My video management technique is passable, and my music management is also pretty bad. And the real issue here is that um, I have a Synology disk station uh, network, network attached storage, which has something to the order of 18 terabytes of space. Up until I got that, I didn't have enough space to really become much of a pack rat. But now that I basically have infinite space, I want all the things and I want them available to me from any device immediately. And so because of that, I've had to start thinking a lot more about media management and what to do with all of my media. And as an example, I think that there is a devout and devoted Hazel user somewhere within me, but I have yet to hear anyone explain to me a decent way that Hazel would fix a problem that I have that I couldn't just do with like a shell script or something like that. Okay. Well, first yeah, off, but... Hazel would keep you from having to write a shell script. So that's <laughs> plus one right yeah. there. There is that. Um, but I, so know, are you, I... are you trying to figure out like how to, how to shuffle and store all of, all of this? I mean, cause you know, Federico did that massive post um, in, and I think we'll probably try to find it and put a link to it in the show notes about how he uses Hazel to, he doesn't use a lot, or at least he doesn't primarily use iPhoto any longer to organize his photos. He's got a, a Dropbox method. And so how he right. uses Hazel to um, pull photos that he has taken from various places, whether it be his iPhone or things that he's imported into his computer, and organize them into a uh, file and folder structure based on date and, and time that they were taken into a, a Dropbox folder structure. Yeah, and yeah. I actually, thanks to Dr. Drang, have a shell script that does a very similar thing. So Dr. Drang wrote a post a while back uh, where he had a couple of Python scripts that would take a folder full of pictures and look at the EXIF data, EXIF data, 
that tells like when the picture was taken and things of that nature. And it will shuffle them, shuffle these pictures into folders based on date and time and so on. And this, I think, was largely inspired by Bradley Chambers. Uh, what is it? Learning to Love Photo Management. We'll have to put a link for that in the show notes or something, uh, something yeah. along those lines. Um, and that, that book is really good and I highly suggest it. And so when I'm diligent enough to actually pull pictures from my phone, I am also diligent enough to sort them using the script. But I don't even want to do that, man. I just want them to magically go where they need to go. And so I've recently subscribed to Picture Life, which replaced EverPix for me. And I really like it. And I really think it works well. The only problem I have with it is that's made me even lazier about pulling pictures off of my phone because Picture Life will just make that happen magically. And because we don't yet have a child, we don't yet have a DSLR or anything fancy like that. So the only pictures we take are on our phones and picture life largely takes care of that and putting it in the cloud. But, um, but I would prefer to have a local copy and I'm terrible at remembering to hook up my phone, start image capture, take all the pictures, run the shell script, then throw the pictures that it, the shell script couldn't find out or figure out when they were taken, throw those in the respective directories. And I'm just terrible. You did an iFi card. I, I did a what? You need an iFi card. Oh, yes. Well, that would be true if I had a DSLR, but, but you, all of but these you are will off. soon enough. That's one of those things that you'll scan with the little scanner thingies when you go shopping this weekend. <laughs> right. yeah, Fair exactly. enough. I, I'd like to back up a little bit on that. A uh, couple points. First of all, I think Dr. Drang is raising to the level of Terpstra that we're going to have to have some kind of ritual as his name comes up because <laughs> his name is coming up quite often. And I was thinking instead of drinking, maybe we'll like have a snow cone. You know, I don't know. <laughs> that sounds but, you know, right. That sounds right. And then and then the second thing is you kind of touched over this quickly, but I'm not sure we've talked too much about it. There's an app on every Mac called Image Capture. I mean, you know, the traditional method of getting your pictures off your phone or your off your camera is you plug it in and iPhoto comes up and you gotta go through that whole process. But the the quick and dirty way that a lot of people don't realize is this app called Image Capture. And you can run it out of Spotlight or if using LaunchBar or Alfred or whatever, it'll find it. And you can plug in a device and image capture will just say, hey, I see all these pictures on this device. What do you want me to do with them? And you can copy them to your desktop. You can put them into a folder or do whatever you want. And it's, it's a great way to get images off a device. Like one of the, the uses I have for it is uh, my kids, you know, they get they take all these pictures on their phones and they're terrible about putting them back on, you know, the computer or something so so we'll just go and we'll load up image capture and we can go through and even just on the mac delete like two-thirds of them off the phone right there and then just capture whatever else we want then we can put it in iphoto and uh, if you're not familiar with it you should be familiar with it because that's really great then the next point i wanted to make was this whole thing we did a whole show on photo management with bradley chambers a little while back and i know atp's been talking about photo management and there's you know there's a reason why all all of us are up in arms about it because i don't think the problem's really been solved and it should be because it's really creating trouble for a lot of users well apple now has announced you know the photos in the cloud and I am I am holding holding my breath on this. I want to see what happens because if they can really deliver on what they're talking about, a reliable cloud service that automatically saves all your photos and it's it's a um it's a seamless process through the Mac and iOS, that's going to solve the problem for a lot of us. Yeah, I agree. The one thing that scares me 
And the reason I brought up image capture in the first place is I'm very particular about having a local copy of all my pictures. I'm also very lazy, but, but I'm very particular about it. And as much as I completely agree with you that I really hope that uh, photos in the cloud or perhaps picture life will fix this for me, it scares me. What happens if I drop my phone in in uh, uh, beer or in an ocean and my Mac just disappears or drops dead at the same moment? How do I get my pictures back? And I do have time machine backups, but I want to make sure that I have at least one, if not two copies of all of my photos on disk somewhere locally. So I don't have to rely on the mythical cloud in order to make sure that everything is safe. Now, obviously, one without the other means they're not safe, but hopefully the combination of a local copy as well as what's in picture life, those two together should hopefully make for a safe setup. Well, I absolutely agree with you. And I, with pictures, I am manic. I mean, I've got them on my transporter. I've got them um, saved to my, you know, to my backup in the cloud. I've got them everywhere. And because they're the pictures and, and you're going to see when you have that baby, those pictures are going to be one of the most important possessions of your life. So you're going to want to really have a great backup. That being right. said, I cannot imagine that they're not going to release this product without a way to make an external backup of those pictures. I mean, just looking at iTunes, it's not, you know, iTunes has those little cloud arrows next to all the stuff that you've got stored in the cloud, because if you tap them, you can download all. And right, there are right. plenty of people that that download their entire iTunes library. I've done it. I've got a, a drive around here with all of my iTunes match content downloaded onto it. I would be shocked if they don't have some solution that's probably easier than the the current iTunes one to say, okay, here's an external drive, put all my pictures on that drive. I, you know, uh, on Aperture, they have the idea of vaults, you know, where you can save a vault of your library. I, I just can't imagine that the people, because I, I, you know, the people working on Aperture needed a job, right? So they've got to be working <laughs> on this new photos app. And I can't imagine they're not going to have a really easy, you know, one button solution to, to, to accomplish that. But if they don't, that's going to be a serious setback for them. Yeah. Now, I will say, though, uh, to pat myself on the back and redeem myself from my photo mismanagement, that my video management when it comes to like uh, DVDs that I've ripped or, or, you know, video files I've come across one way or another, I do think I have that set up reasonably well. And what that basically amounts to, and I'm sure you guys are familiar with this, is I have a directory on my Synology that is named in such a way, or a series of directories, named in such a way that Plex, P-L-E-X, will understand it. And so basically, as long as I drop a ripped DVD that I own or whatever into that subdirectory in, a, in the file format that Plex understands, all of it will be immediately understood. It will be. It will allow me to stream them to my phone or my iPad or my computer from basically anywhere. And that actually, I'm pretty happy with. The metadata is all found by Plex based on the file name. It's all nicely organized. It all makes sense. That is not the Wild West. Photos are a disaster, though. So I, I don't know a single per person that uses Plex that that stopped using Plex. Everybody that that loads it up is sold. Oh, it's fantastic. It is absolutely great. Yeah, I, I use Plex quite a bit. The The big exception to where Plex doesn't work is for things that have been purchased directly from iTunes. And I do buy quite a bit from iTunes now. I, I have been told um, that there are ways that you can get around that. Um, 
but you, you know, your mileage may vary on that. But <laughs> uh, so where do you primarily, because uh, I've got Plex running off of my Drobo. I know you can also run it off of Synology. Uh, and I, I actually have used Plex a lot more because I got a, a new Samsung TV that has Plex, a, a pretty decent Plex app built directly in. You know, now the Apple TV is getting harder to hack with Plex. Hopefully at some point we'll get an Apple TV with, with apps that you can actually in, install on it. How do you, how do you run or, or where do you, where do you view it? Obviously, there are apps on iOS, but otherwise. Mm-hmm. So, generally speaking, the I adore my Synology. It is possibly my favorite technological device, or one of them, because it's infinite space. However, the particular one I have, which is DS eighteen thirteen plus, has a un, unremarkable processor that really is not well suited for doing live transcoding. And what that should mean to to normal people is if you're trying to watch a video that is hosted on Plex on the Synology, but you're trying to do it on, say, a phone where this video is 1080p, but the phone is on cellular and really it needs standard def. Well, what Plex will try to do is it'll try to intelligently transcode and re-encode that video so that it's a lot smaller and doesn't take up as much bandwidth. The problem, however, is that the processor on the on the Synology just can't keep up with it. So what I do instead is my personal MacBook Pro, which uh, Aaron and I share, that is running the Plex Media Server, and I just mount the uh, Synology as a drive on the Mac, and it just and it's pointed to that. So when I connect to Plex, rather than connecting directly to the Synology, which would be so min- so much easier in a variety of ways. I actually end up connecting to my Mac, which in turn goes and looks for media on the Synology. It's a little backwards, but it works. And then in order to play stuff, typically what I'll do is I'll get on either my iPad or my phone. If I'm at home, uh, I will just use AirPlay mirroring, or not mirroring, excuse me, just use AirPlay in order to beam it to the Apple TV that's sitting in the uh, family room. Makes sense. I love AirPlay, but um, uh, man, I'd much rather have a, a native app for, for many things. Oh, but, goodness. Uh, goodness, me too. Yeah. So I know another app that you use quite a bit that we talked a little bit about in the pre-show is Alfred. And, um, you know, I, I'm a LaunchBar user. I've reconverted over to LaunchBar because they now have some of these workflowy things. But I, I was an Alfred user for a long time specifically because you could create um, custom workflows on Alfred. So tell me a little bit about how you use Alfred and specifically some of these custom workflows you've created. Yeah, you know, I tried LaunchBar and there was something else I can't or Quicksilver that I Quicksilver, had tried yep. way back when. Um, and they, the way they thought was not the way I thought. It doesn't make it wrong. It's just I didn't think of things the way they did. And Alfred just clicked with me. And so I use Alfred mostly for out-of-the-box stuff to quickly search for files, to quickly load applications, to quickly run shell scripts by typing a greater than symbol and then typing whatever code I want into the window. But I do have a handful of little scripts that that do things for me that I really do a lot. So as an example, I manage the money for Erin and I, but I want her to be aware of what our money situation is at any given moment. And I don't want her to have to, you know, tug me on the you know shirt and ask me, yo, what's going on with cash? So what I do is I use MoneyWell uh, by No Thirst Software, if I'm not mistaken. And I take a screenshot. Every time I'm done with MoneyWell, I take a screenshot of our accounts. So that shows the balance of all our different bank accounts. And so that'll drop on the desktop. 
Well, one of the workflows I have in Alfred is you can create file actions. So with a certain keystroke, which I think is command option backspace, but I might be wrong about that. But anyways, it's just muscle memory now. But uh, with a certain keystroke, I it can pop up a context menu with the context being the particular file or files that you just had highlighted in Finder. And so what I do is I take that screenshot of MoneyWell. It drops the screenshot on the desktop. I do the little uh, key combination in order to pop up an Alfred window. And then I hit up and enter, and that kicks off my move, uh, the MoneyWell file workflow. All that does is move that file from the desktop into a shared folder in our Dropbox with the same name every single time. But doing that in aggregate has probably saved me 20 or 30 hours because I do this probably once a day. And silly things like that just make a world of difference. A couple other workflows I have, um, pasting my clipboard to a file, which I do a lot as a developer. You know, maybe I have a block of JSON or maybe a block of XML that I want it, that I found in Safari that I want to put into a file. I can copy it, type a Alfred command, and it will put that, the contents of the clipboard into a file on the desktop or really anywhere, actually. Um, and a couple other silly things like that. There were others that I used a lot that I don't use anymore. Um, one example is I used to connect physically to my time machine backup drive. Now I do it over the network and uh, one or two other USB drives. And so I had a disconnect script and I could run this script in you know, command space disconnect and it would automatically unmount those drives so I could rip them out of my computer and walk away rather than having to go to Finder and hit eject and hit, yes, I want to eject all the partitions on this drive. Oh, now I got to hit eject on the other drive. Yes, I want to hit all the, you know, eject all the partitions on that drive. Stupid stuff like that that would just save oodles of time in the aggregate. And how do you go about yeah, creating think, these these workflows? Um, pretty much all of them are just little shell scripts, uh, which I know is probably sounds a little daunting, but they're really, really, really simple. Um, so for example, the, the one for money, well, it's just move MV, and then you use a little, uh, little block that says move whatever file we're talking about. And then it's a path, you know, a tilde slash Dropbox slash Aaron slash, you know, whatever the file name is moneywell.ping. It's very, very simple. And I know, well, that probably sounds disingenuous because this is the sort of thing I do for a living, but it is fairly straightforward. And what I haven't even had a chance to fiddle with is in Alfred, you can actually now basically do visual workflows. So you can say, start with this, perform this action, get this input, perform that action, et cetera, et cetera. And I've not fiddled with it, but from everything I've heard, it's very easy and very robust. Yeah. You know, I've spent some time with Yosemite and, you know, they've, the ins they've got a lot better, you know, you know, if you hit command space, you're going to get a nice, you know, they, they've taken over the center of the screen as opposed to where it used to be up in the upper right corner. And they've still got a lot of the tools, but applications like Alfred and LaunchBar really don't have anything to worry about because you can do so many power moves with those applications to do things like quickly send a file or do file management that Spotlight just doesn't really solve yet. And I'm not sure it ever will because, you know, Apple wants it to work, you know, as kind of a common denominator application, whereas the guys that are doing Alfred and LaunchBar are just so far ahead of that stuff. Um, it, it, I think that's one of the 
the best things you can do to get better at your Mac, if you haven't tried one of those two applications, you should because it can change everything once you start learning. It, it is a form of shorthand, you know, once you start learning it. Like you were talking about how you select a file in Alfred with option command. I think it's backslash um, if memory serves. And on launch bar, it's you hold the command button and you long space it. And I was sitting on my wife's computer and I did that and it didn't light up and it didn't give me the option to immediately email it and send it somewhere and do all the stuff. And I'm like, what the heck's going on here? <laughs> you know, because I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm so used to it. it. I panicked for a minute, you know, but the, uh, it, it really is a great power tip for people to go try one of those. And I think all of us started with Quicksilver. I mean, that was the first one that really showed what you could do with this stuff, but you know, Quicksilver, it's kind of died on the vine. I know they tried to resurrect it at one point, but I haven't really kept up with it. And it's open source. So, you know, it's just not going to be getting the love and attention that an app that you pay money for is going to get. Well, speaking of, you know, little apps that, that make things simple for you, um, you know, we're, we're coming up upon our witching hour pretty soon here. And so I want to make sure to talk about um, what are some of those other little gems on your on your Mac that just make working on a Mac, such a pleasure. And maybe the reason why you've, you've opted to to switch to a Mac. Uh, but before we do, I, I want to talk about our last sponsor for this episode, or rather I want to let David talk about our last sponsor for this episode, I guess. Yeah. And that sponsor is transporter. You know, what is a transporter? It's a transporter is a storage device that lets you create your own private cloud for syncing, accessing, protecting, and sharing your data. So you understand the concept of Dropbox. They've got this cloud storage. There's a drive somewhere out there that they're going to put your data on, and it allows you to share it and have all these great benefits. The problem with that has always been you don't control that drive that your data is on. Well, Transporter solves that problem for you. The drive goes right in your home, connected to your router, and you can see it right there. Uh, it's better than other cloud solutions because it's 100% under your control where your files are stored and who has access to them. All the communications are encrypted, so you're absolutely in control. So if you like Dropbox, you're going to love Transporter. It's got out-of-the-box setup just like Dropbox. With Transporter 2.0, when you create an account, you create a folder on your Mac or your PC to hold all the documents you want to sync between the computers. You can drag and drop them in there, and it just happens. These will automatically start syncing with your Transporter transporter and the setup is just as the same as creating a new Dropbox account. It's also got drag and drop folders to sync or share. Any folder under the top level connected data folder will be shared and synced. You can create new folders or drag existing ones in and they are also automatically synced. You know, like my iBooks author files and all the stuff I do for the Max Sparky field guides, all of that is stored in a transporter that I control and it all starts with one root folder and everything's underneath it. You can share a folder or a, or a, with a single mouse click. So you can select any folder to share with others by right-clicking the mouse. And Katie and I use that tool to share data related to our podcast because we've got these massive files. Um, we can also share by emailing a link. So if you right-click the link in the mouse, you can send an email invitation for a user to share a file. The email recipient can click on the link and download the file you're sharing. So you got a big email attachment. You can solve that with a transporter too. Uh, the unique transporter features are that it's total privacy. You control who has access to the files and the data is not stored on a server anywhere, but the one in your house. If you want to take it off the internet, you walk to your transporter and unplug it and it's off the internet. 
Uh, when you erase a file, all the copies are erased. Um, there's no, you know, backup copy somewhere out there that someone could get access to. It's got special fo folders. So the transporter works like you do, uh, when the drop, uh, you know, with Dropbox, everything needs to be placed in the Dropbox folder with transporter. You can select a special folder like documents, music, or pictures or movies, and you can sync those as well. It's pretty awesome. Uh, there's some people that are using transporter to sync their entire Mac that way. Um, it's got additional network storage, so it lets you store files in bulk, providing network access without taking up space on your SSD. So you can have it on your drop on your um on your transporter and it doesn't come down, which is pretty cool. And there's no extra fees. You know, uh, when you get into a Dropbox account, a one terabyte uh, is quite expensive with one terabyte on your transporter. It's a one-time cost of $249. You own the drive. Um, it's in there and you're never going to pay another monthly fee again. It's much more expensive to do something like that on Dropbox. So it's all secure and private. You have control. You can do it as you want. They've also got some new features. You can upload images or videos from your iOS camera roll in the full resolution straight to your transporter now. These guys get it. It's another one of these developers that is is just constantly pushing the envelope, making their product better. And they've got some special offers for Mac Power users listeners. You can save 10% off the purchase, and that's up to $35 on any transporter model by using the code MPU10. That's MPU10 uh, when you buy at www.filetransporter.com. Transporters come in 500 gigabyte, 1 terabyte, and 2 terabyte capacities. Now, listeners who want to provide their own USB drive should buy the Transporter Sync, which is a model that provides the same functionality and lets you select which capacity brand drive to use. So if you've got an extra drive around your house, you can just get one of these things in your set. Uh, you can save $20 on that when you buy at filetransporter.com using the code MPU20. I love the transporter. I've sold a lot of them to friends because everybody likes the idea of their own private cloud storage. You should go check it out yourself. And thanks again to Transporter for supporting the show. All right, let's talk about some of our favorite uh, utility apps. Casey, what, what are the ones that you have um, that help you get through the day? Yeah, and Mac or iOS. You don't have to stay limited to the Mac. <laughs> but the name on the tin says Mac Power. No, I'm just kidding. Um, the one that I think is most different that not a lot of people have heard of is something called Control Plane. And we will put a link in the show notes. Uh, what I believe the, the kind of catchphrase is context aware computing. No, I'm sorry, context sensitive computing. So what this does is if I go to and from work, as I do most days, when I'm at home, maybe I don't want to have a screensaver password. And maybe I want to have my home printer as the default printer. And maybe, I don't know, I, I want to mount a drive or do some other action when I arrive home. When I get to work, I want my work printer to be the active one. I want to crank my screensaver password from either never or, you know, an hour down to just a couple minutes. And also when I get to work, I want to open Outlook. I want to open HitChat. I want to open VMware Fusion. And when I leave work, I want all those apps to close. Control Plane lets you automate all that. So what you do is you take a couple steps and you establish different locations like work and home, for example. And you can tell the, you can tell Control Plane, well, when you see an IP address says 10.1.something.something, that means I'm at work. Or perhaps if you see that I'm connected to a Samsung external monitor, that means I'm at work. Or perhaps 
uh, I don't know, maybe you see a printer nearby or you have a USB device plugged in, any number of different evidence sources, as they call it. And then once it establishes where you are, you can tell it a bunch of actions to take. Start an app, close an app, change the default printer. I think you can run Apple Script, uh, speaking of Dr. Drang. And so you can do all these things. And Still this going. does. Yeah, yeah exactly. Uh, and this takes away a lot of the stupid stuff that I have to do every single day. It, it It's very much a lazy man or woman's approach to life, but I love it. And it's free, which is really nice as well. It's free and open source. So that's called Control Plane. Um, and then another couple on, really- on that, on that subject really quick. Um, mm-hmm. yeah, the, you know, I don't know if you're familiar with keyboard maestro or not. Um, but I believe last year they came out with the feature, you know, keyboard maestro is kind of the same idea where it's got triggers and actions. And one of the triggers it acknowledges now is which Wi-Fi network you're connected to. So, you know, being a big keyboard maestro nerd, as soon as that happened, I set it up. So when I show up for work in the morning, as soon as it connects to my works Wi-Fi, all sorts of things happen on my Mac. You know, it logs into the website that I have to read every day. It loads up OmniFocus and BusyCal and the apps that I need to kind of get my day rolling. And it does all this great stuff. I, I'd be very interested to see uh, Control Plane and Keyboard Maestro comparison to see, you know, what the benefits and detriments are to using those two different apps for that approach. Yeah, and I mean, I just really love Control Plane for basically yeah. to, going to and from work. And also, like, when I plug in my USB mic, it knows that I'm in podcasting mode. So it starts Skype, starts Piezo, starts Google Chrome, because I use that for Google Docs with ATP. It starts Colloquy, which is the, I think that's how you pronounce it, the IRC chat that we use for uh, ATP. Yeah. And then when I unplug my USB mic, it kills everything except Skype and Piezo, just because I want to make sure that I didn't do it accidentally. Um, a couple others yeah, that are interesting. Uh, yeah, it, it really works out well. A couple others that are a little bit on the nerdier side still. Um, one of which is Homebrew, which is basically a bunch of open source Unix uh, command line tools that Homebrew makes very, very, very easy to install. So as an example, wget, which lets you download uh, something at a URL, that, to my knowledge, isn't included with OS X. But if you install Homebrew, you can type brew space install space wget, and it will figure out how to find it, how to get it, the compiled version, and put it on your Mac. Earlier today, I wanted to see if my Synology was accessible from the internet, uh, and so I needed nmap, and so I did brew install nmap, and 15 seconds later, I had nmap on my computer. It's very nerdy, but it works out really well, and um, I definitely recommend it. And then my final one, and it, it, we're recording, like you guys said, a little in advance of when this is going to be released. But uh, at the time we recorded, there's a new version of iStat menus, mm. I-S-T-A-T menus. And John Syracuse will tell you that you shouldn't need to run this because you shouldn't need to worry about what's going on in your Mac and it's distracting and killing your battery, etc. However, I like to know whether or not my, my CPU is getting slaughtered and how quickly I'm transmitting uh, data over the network. And iStat menus will do many things besides that, but what, what, the, what it will do is it will put little widgets in your menu bar that will let you see your CPU usage as a graph in your menu bar. And it'll let you see your network throughput, both upstream and dow- downstream, as either text or a graph in your menu bar. 
And then if you click on any of these, it will drop down very, very informative menus. So I can see that Skype is transmitting about two kilobytes a second in, in and about six kilobytes a second out. And it shows you all of this information, which maybe I, I want a little bit more because I'm a developer. But as a silly example, if I hear my fans on my MacBook Pro start screaming and I look at my network throughput and I'm uploading like 10 or 20 megs a second, I realize, oh, I forgot to turn off Time Machine before we recorded this podcast, and I'm probably sending a Time Machine back up, and that's why my computer's going nuts. So I didn't have to do any real diagnosis. I just had to glance at my menu bar. And I really, really love iStat, and I can't recommend it enough. I'm with you, Casey. I, I need that data. Although, I do put it, I have Bartender. I don't know if you're, sure if you're familiar with that app. Yep, yep. Uh, uh, so I put, I put the iStat stuff in bartender. So it's not always up there or I, I frankly would find myself gazing at it lovingly as I'm going through <laughs> my day. So I, I put it under bartender, but when something funny seems to be going on, like all of a sudden that the network gets slow or I hear a fan turn on, I will go up and check what's, what's going on with iStat. And I don't know any way faster to do it than just put it in your menu bar. I do about yeah. half and half. Well, some of the stuff goes on in Bartender, but some of it I keep up. Like I like the iStat battery monitor better than the typical OS battery monitor. Oh, agree. So I, I use that in place of the regular battery monitor. And I, I do keep the network and the CPU and the regular menu bar and everything else in Bartender. Katie, I don't remember. There used to be an app before iStat kind of menu took over. Menu meters. That was it. And it wasn't as pretty. And it, it, at the time, it seemed like it was more efficient on you know hitting your clock. I thought that iStat was a little worse, but um, I don't even know if they're around anymore. I but, think they are. But iStat is iStat is pretty nice. I'm going to get that upgrade. I just I just put it in uh, to my read it later service today. I want to read about it and download it this weekend. We're such geeks. We get excited about things like iStat. <laughs> <laughs> it's so true. No, I just, I like to know what the situation is. I like to know what's going on around me or around my computer. And like, like you both said, just at a glance, you can figure out exactly what's going on. And I'm, I'm very particular about what's in my menu bar. I try to keep it as clean as I can within reason. And even despite that, all I have in the menu bar, that's, that's iStat is the CPU meter, which has got to be what, like 30 pixels wide, if that, probably 15 pixels. And the uh, network throughput, which is probably 50 pixels wide. Um, but the battery meter, I think, is actually smaller than the stock battery meter. The yeah, clock so is no bigger. It. Yep, the clock is no bigger than the stock clock, unless you went and did the little, you know, illegible analog clock. But anyways, um, so in the grand scheme of things, I feel like this is absolutely worth keeping in my menu bar. Um, and almost everything else I try to banish as quickly as possible. My my menu bar is kind of an iceberg style uh, menu bar. <laughs> the, the part in the menu bar is very small, but well, you click on bartender and it's just a it's just a hot mess. There, it goes all the way across the screen. <laughs> well, Casey, uh, hey, give give me wait wait. I got one more for you because we haven't okay. talked about iOS at all. I g give me one great iOS app that you love. That, well, fast um, text of doesn't course. get much. <laughs> naturally the answer is katie was right there thank uh, you katie well, how about um, one that you that you haven't developed yourself uh you know i'm trying to think there i'm trying to think of something that isn't the you know average one password etc cetera, etc cetera. 
Um, one thing I will say, uh, uh, let me give you two if I, if I can. One is sleep cycle. And the way that works is you keep your iPhone literally under your sheets in your bed. Well, you, should, you don't keep it there. You place your iPhone under your sheets in your bed. And based on how much you move around, and I guess the volume coming into the iPhone, it will try to wake you up in a half an hour window of time, but at a moment when you're already rustling about. So if you're in like a deep sleep, it'll try to hold on as long as it can before waking you up. And then if you start shifting about or, or what have you, at that point, it will start to slowly build up not only a vibrate, but a quiet and then louder and then louder alarm. I'm not sure if it's all a placebo or if or if it really does make waking up easier. Um, and to be honest, I tend to wake up before it most days anyway. But it's a very clever app that I really, really like. And I was turned on to that by my friend Adam Swindon. Um, and the so nice thing good. about that is it also gives you some data. You can see how oh, fidgety yes. you were yes. over the night. Yep, that's absolutely true. And, and that's sometimes depressing and sometimes very interesting. Uh, as an example, I tend to go to bed reasonably early especially for a guy my age and the nights that we record atp i tend to go to bed quite a bit later so if you look at my lifetime graph we tend to record atp on wednesday nights so my wednesday night sleep are a solid like hour or two shorter than most days and because sleep cycle has figured that out um the other one i should mention is something i just discovered and just actually yesterday the day before just installed um, I know you guys have talked about home automation in the past, and I'm starting to kind of get into that myself. And a friend of mine, Phil, had pointed me out to this thing called the Chamberlain MyQ, and we'll put a sh link in the show notes. And what that is, is it's a couple of boxes, one of which you stick on your garage door and one of which you stick near your garage door opening. Oh, I want and, one of these. Yeah. Tell me oh, about this. It's, oh, it's amazing. It's like my favorite thing in the world. And so what it does is the thing on the garage door has like a mercury switch or an accelerometer or something like that to let the other device, the, uh, the one near the garage door opener, know whether or not the garage door is up or down. The device that's near the garage door opener does two things. Well, three, actually. One, it acts as a Bluetooth device, which we'll talk about in a second. Two, it connects to your Wi-Fi network. And then three, it masquerades as a garage door opener. So in summary, what this MyQ app does is lets me open or close or just check the status of my garage door from anywhere, which is super awesome because I'm very forgetful and occasionally I will forget to close the garage door before going to bed. And as I've mentioned, I'm very lazy, so I don't want to walk all the way downstairs to have to close it. I can just be in bed and say, whoops, I forgot, and it will close the garage door for me. Now, will it, it do is, things like alert you if after a certain hour the garage door is open or if after you've left the house the garage door is open or automatically close it? Um, sort of. So you can create rules, and I'm looking at it right now, and it says send me alert when the, and then you have three toggles. The garage door is open, the garage door is closed, and then I, or you can either do this as soon as it happens or if it's been, for example, open longer than an hour. The problem I have is what I really want to do is I want it to tell me, hey, it's after 10 o'clock at night and your garage door is still open. And I haven't quite figured out the right way to get their alert system to do that. But are they on if this, then that? Do they have um, I I, I, connection? I don't think so. I understand the question and I'm pretty sure it is not yet. But 
your head's in the right place. And I'll have to check that out actually. But, um, but what was really cool about it was when I was setting it up, which took me all of five minutes, it had me pair my phone with the little base station that's near the garage door opener. And even as a developer, I had no idea you could do this. Once I paired my phone with the garage door opener thing via Bluetooth, it actually asked me using a standard iOS prompt. This is outside of their app. This is just normal iOS. It said, hey, do you want to share your Wi-Fi settings with this device? Oh, wonderful. What? That's a thing? I didn't even know you could do that. And so sure enough, setting it up took no time because I stuck the little thing to the garage door using the provided adhesive tape. I plugged in the base station and just set it on top of my garage door opener, which you're not really supposed to do, but whatever. And then I plugged it in and connected via Bluetooth. It said, all right, I will take your Wi-Fi settings. Once it got connected via Wi-Fi, start the app. And the app says, all right, what kind of garage door opener do you have? In my case, you have to press a little button on the garage door opener itself. And then it will start churning through all the different ways in which it can open a garage door. And eventually it will find it and start all the crap out of you in my case. But then the garage door will start opening and the little box on the garage door will report back to the base station. Oh, you've got it. That's it. Save that. And so, like I said, the installation took no time. And now I can open and close my garage door from anywhere, or at least know if it's open from anywhere. Yeah, I've got the... This, um, this stuff is... Yeah, it's ahead, it's so cool. I I have that same problem, and I can't tell you how many times I have driven to work and turned around to see whether oh, my garage absolutely. door was open. Um, and ultimately, what I ended up doing is I just got one of those little D-Link y, um, wireless cameras and stuck it in my garage so that I could just open up the D-Link app on my my phone and see whether my garage door was open or closed or not. That still didn't stop me from having to turn around and go close it if I'd left it open. Um, <laughs> right. But ironically, since I've done that, I have not left it open. Um, but then I also got the um, the Smart Things kit, and they've got a little sticky that you can put on your garage door. And the uh, now they don't have a mechanism um, by default that will let you open and close it. Although there's some things that you can jury rig to do that. But what it it does have a little more intelligent rule system. And so I have set up a rule because Smart Things knows based on your iOS location, assuming your phone is with you, whether you're home or whether you're away. So you can set up a rule that says, if I'm away from the house and my garage door has been open for five minutes, send me an alert. Or, oh, that's very cool. Yeah. And I think you can even set up to do, if it is after nine o'clock and my garage door is open, send me an alert. All this home automation stuff is like accelerating quickly. Like a year from now, I think it's going to be a completely different set of options that exist now. And I think and HomeKit I, is going to help with that. I hope, I hope like yeah. something like this Chamberlain, you could just tell Siri, is my garage door open? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, me too. And I hope, I hope the stuff I've been buying finds a way into whatever the, um, <laughs> whatever the, you know, common language of all this stuff becomes, but uh, I'm loving it. And I just, uh, I just think we're going to have a lot of fun next year and we're going to find all sorts of ways to simplify our lives with the internet and these connected devices. I can hear, I just hear listeners rolling their eyes right now, but I, I'm actually kind of <laughs> excited about it. Hey, Casey Liss, I know who you are. <laughs> and uh, thank you so much for coming on our show. It was great having you. And, and really, we appreciate the stuff you bring us. I keep blogging. Uh, we're going to put a link in the show notes. Everybody should follow Casey. He's got some great ideas. Uh, you're going to have so much fun with this new baby. You'll have to let us know the geek tips. Maybe we'll have you come back and do a, a geek dad show. 
at some oh, point. Oh, I'd love to. And um, and thanks for everything you do for the Accidental Tech Podcast. What is your uh, Twitter handle so people can go find you? Sure. So to find me on Twitter, it's my name, which is extremely Yeah, you know, I should have known it. I listened to that song. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Where can people find you on Twitter and and your website? Give us your website too. Sure. Sure. So on Twitter, I am Casey Liss, C-A-S-E-Y-L-I-S-S. And then my website is CaseyLiss.com. Now, and, and where's your home address again? <laughs> exactly. Well, and just take your... if you live on the first floor or the second floor. Yeah. <laughs> right, right. And uh, um, Katie, where can you find us in all the show notes? Well, you can find links to everything that we talked about in this episode at our website at MacPowerUsers.com or at 5x5.tv slash MPU. And you can find us on Twitter. We're at MacPowerUsers. Uh, Katie's at Katie Floyd. I'm at Max Sparky. And you can send us feedback to feedback at MacPowerUsers.com. All right. Well, that will wrap us up. Thank you again, Casey, for joining us. And we will see you all next time. Bye.